Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. One of the stories that has been dominating the news uh, for the last couple of weeks and has actually spurred a few provincial campaigns, particularly around awareness and activism, is the whole conversation around open pit coal mines in the Rockies. Now, there's been a lot of, uh, let's go with conflicting information that's been presented to the public. And so one of the things that we wanted to do with this episode is try to go directly to one of the sources for some of the information as well as one of the sources for one of the groups that's actively organizing to try to uh, prevent these mines from happening. Uh, so we're very, very excited to be able to welcome to the show today Katie Morrison. Uh, Katie is the, uh, works with the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, or CPAWS. Uh, and I'm thrilled that I was able to get through that whole acronym without screwing it up because it's just been CPAWS in my head for the last few days. So uh, Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, so to start with, because we like to do, always do a little bit of an introduction so that our, our listeners and viewers know who we're talking to, um, who is Katie Morrison? Well, that's a big question. Um, so I'm, a, I'm the conservation director with CPAWS in our Southern Alberta chapter. Um, I'm a biologist uh, and I also have a master's in environmental design. So some of my passions in life, but also my you know, academic and work background is environmental issues, both from the science side, but also the community side, the, the, the part around how people interact with their natural environment and, and how that shapes um, who we are as people. Um, I also am a avid lover of the outdoors. I, I'm a hunter, I'm an angler, I do a lot of camping. Um, and so I'm often working to protect and working on places that I love to be out enjoying as well. Okay. And are you, are you from Alberta originally or are you from the States or New Zealand? <laughs> um, I grew up in Manitoba. My, my parents are both from Alberta. So, um, but we grew up in Manitoba. My, both my parents worked in agriculture. Um, and then in um, the late nineties, my, my parents moved back for work. Um, and I followed a few years later. So Oh, I was going to say how many years I was going to be, I've been here, but that might uh, tell my age. But it's been a while now that I have been in Alberta and I, and I absolutely consider Alberta home. And um, it's, it's, it's in my heart and it's in my genes and uh, in my blood because our family's been here a long time. Excellent. Uh, so just from there, uh, what is CPAWS? Yeah, CPAWS is the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. Um, we are a national nonprofit organization, so we work across the country on parks and wilderness. Um, and our model is that we have a national organization and then 13 chapters that are able to work on the ground um, in communities and, and in on the on the ground everyday issues. Um, so in the Southern Alberta chapter, we're mostly working around, you know, Red Deer South-ish, although we work really closely. We have a, a chapter in Northern Alberta as well, so we work really closely with them to cover um, the issues across the province. Uh, and essentially what we try and work on is uh, protected areas. So getting new protected areas um, and parks in, in the province. Um, you know, we worked, we worked on a lot of uh, campaigns throughout the years, getting um, into the Kananaskis parks in the Peter Lahi days, um, all the way up to, you know, most recently the, the Castle Wildland and Provincial Parks that were, that were uh, designated a few years ago. We also make sure that once those parks are parks, they are properly managed. So, you know, just drawing a line on a map doesn't necessarily mean something is, is protected. Um, 
although it does under the protected areas legislation, we need to make sure that those management in those parks is prioritizing nature and prioritizing um, people being able to interact with nature. And then the third thing we do, which is you know, really relevant to what we'll talk about today is the public lands piece. So other wild public lands that are not protected, um, we can't just write those off because they're not parks. It's really important what happens on those public lands um, for environmental reasons, for social reasons, even economic reasons. So we also work on those public lands to make sure that um, they're being well-managed and well-protected well and prioritizing nature and making sure that we're you know, really not deeply impacting those ecological functions. Now, if this is a, a national nonprofit, I'd, if it's okay with you, I'd like to get just to some of the questions that I know that people will ask out of the way. Um, are you, is, is CPAWS directly affiliated with any political organization? No, so being a charity and being an, an, a nonprofit, we are entirely nonpartisan. Um, so we don't, we, we take positions on policies, but not parties. Um, we don't back any particular party and we never have. We worked really constructively with, with governments of all stripes and people who support governments of all stripes for um, you know, over 50 years. Our, our chapter was formed in 1967. So um, we, yeah, we just work with policies and, and, and management, not with parties. Okay. And in regards to where you get your funding to do all of this stuff, uh, how is CPAWS funded? It's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, so we are a member-based organization, so people can give us donations. So we get um, some of our funding from, you know, individual donations from Albertans. Um, we apply for a lot of grants. I write a lot of grant proposals to foundations, um, you know, saying we think this is an important issue. We want to we want to take this work on, and and they fund us or they don't. Um, we get some government funding, also largely through grant streams, um, and. A little bit of corporate funding, um, particularly in Southern Alberta for our education programs and things like that that come from businesses or, or other corporations. Do you receive any any international funding? We do some. Some of the some of the foundations that we apply to um, are from from the US. Um, but I think, you know, that's become this big issue and and what you really need to understand about that part is when we apply for funding, it is our organization that sets those objectives. And then we're looking for foundations who have similar values and vision um, that, that will give us those funds. So it's not a huge amount. Um, the vast majority of our funding is Canadian, um, but we, we do apply to some grants that are outside of Canada. But you have, when, when we're talking about those grants that are outside of Canada, your, your organization is the organization that controls the direction of how those funds are used. Entirely. Um, nope. Yeah, we, we, we cannot take direction and don't take direction from anyone outside of our organization. Our board sets our directive, our members give input into that, um, and we, we really set those priorities. Okay, so we can maybe uh, save uh, Mr. Steve Allen a little bit of time today uh, because we know he's, he appears to be a little bit overwhelmed with his, his homework. You guys are not part of any international conspiracy to landlock Alberta oil. We, we are not. <laughs> okay, perfect. There he goes. Did you, I can, did say, you that, I can say that entirely, resolutely, we are not. <laughs> perfect. So, um, to go from there, let's talk about sort of this whole question around the, the coal mines uh, and see what, what I'm hoping that we can get from you today is a little bit of history of that process. 
because there's been quite a bit of back and forth over whose fault, and for our audio listeners, I'm going crazy with the air quotes on that one, uh, it is that we find ourselves in the position that we're in. So can you give our listeners, a, and particularly we're talking about the, the Grassy Mountain uh, project, can you give our, our listeners a little bit of context in regards to how did we get to be where we are now? Yeah, and there are there are a couple of veins to that, and I think um, one of the things that we're hearing uh, from governments or or others um, who are responding to the public pressure is is Grassy Mountain and the coal policy are very different things, and I will say they are different as as far as how we got to them, um, but ultimately they are both potential big coal mine projects in the Rockies, uh, and I think most people who are working on any of these issues would say both of them are large threats to all the values um, of those areas. So starting with Grassy Mountain, um, Grassy Mountain has been um, sort of in the works since I think 2014 is when they um, started that process. Um, they went through you know, exploration, they did um, an environmental impact assessment. Um, their first EA was actually submitted, I, I wanna say 2016. And it was found to have major deficiencies um, and they sort of were sent back to do another one. Uh, that one was filed last year. Um, and it went through, I think, 10 rounds of additional information requests where, where concerned groups or citizens as well as the governments were saying, hey, you didn't quite cover this part uh, to standard. Um, and can you give us more information on those things? And then finally a hearing was called. Um, and a hearing is sort of, one of the last steps in the, in the, in the regulatory process, uh, where in this case, um, someone representing the provincial Alberta energy regulator, someone representing the federal um, impact assessment agency, and then a chair, a, sort of a three panel um, that, that sort of acts, sort of acts like a, a judge type system, um, went through a, a month long hearing where Benga, the, the company, um, and their consultants that they had hired um, presented their environmental impact assessment and all their mitigations. And then interveners um, who are mostly groups because it's a pretty um, involved process to intervene in something like that. Um, we were one of those interveners um, as were uh, several other Alberta Wilderness Association, Livington Landowners Group, um, the MD of Ranch Lands, I think all intervened as well. But we, we then looked at that and said, we're not quite sure what, what their environmental impact says from their consultants um, is the whole story. And we hire experts in those topics to come and present to the joint review panel those, those um, alternate opinions or based on their expertise. So all that wrapped up in end of December. Um, the panel got all, all the final submissions in January and now that panel um, is going through all of that information and they'll be recommending in June, they'll recommend to the provincial regulator and the federal environment minister um, what they found in that and, and whether the project should be approved or what conditions or what major concerns they might have. So that's sort of where Grassy Mountain is sitting. Um, and on that one, um, you know, it is kind of sitting with the joint review panel and now potentially probably the federal minister who will ultimately make that decision. 
Okay. Uh, and with that has also come the, the rescission, rescind, rescinding, rescinding, mm-hmm. there you go, uh, of the 1976, uh, coal policy. So to start with what was the 1976 coal policy and in the view of CPAWS, what does the rescission of that policy mean for more, uh, open pit coal mines? Yeah, so the, the coal policy um, was, yeah, like you said, created in 1976 um, by Peter Lougheed or by Peter Lougheed's government. And there was a lot in the coal policy at the time. It was everything from that, that dictated how coal should be developed in the province. So at that time, it was royalties. It was um, really ensuring that Albertans got the benefit of coal mining. Um, it included... Um, a lot of pieces that that have mostly I think since been replaced but the key piece that that was still really relevant uh, for of the coal policy was their zoning system so the coal policy looked at the Rocky Mountains and based on the information they had at that time said these areas are are going to be completely off limits to coal mining certain areas are going to be really restricted um, and that's the category two which we'll talk about a little bit more um, and then some areas, mostly the areas that already had some coal activity, um, were zoned sort of more open, more open for coal. So there, there are four categories: zone one, complete restricted; um, zone two, or category two, um, really restricted exploration and no surface mining, so no open pit, no mountaintop removal. And then categories three and four allowed some um, mining under you know regular conditions. So when that policy was canceled in June, um, it removed all of those categories and made everything kind of open. Well, not kind of open, completely open. Um, And the biggest change was that category two. So the government has said that they will continue to um, uh, protect uh, category one, although what they've done that through what's called a protective notation. um, And that's not a legally binding anything. It is sort of a, a flag um, that says this area has more value, um, but there's no actual legal backing to that. Uh, and there's also privately held coal rights in those areas that are that are now open. And then category two, um, which, which previously didn't allow surface mining, it's about 1.5 million hectares um, across the Rocky Mountains that now allows coal mining that didn't before. Um, and that is the biggest change. And so these are areas that are source water, literally the area that 80, 90% of our water in Alberta comes from and across the Canadian prairies. Uh, We know they're really important for wildlife, um, threatened native trout, you know, I'm 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 an angler. And so I love our headwater streams and and fishing those streams. So, and they are filled with these these trout species that are federally listed as threatened. Um, they are the places that we play. They, like these are some of the most valuable areas that Albertans go out to and, and fish and hunt and hike and camp. Um, and they also support local economies. You know, we're seeing that the ranching community is quite upset about this, as are you know outdoor guides and, and businesses uh, because it it's essentially is their business these these places and these desorbs. And so, uh, without the coal policy, these places are at risk of potential new coal developments. Now, I listened to an interview a little while ago uh, where the Minister of Parks and Environment, Jason Nixon, 
did a whole thing on how, uh, well, yeah, we got rid of the policy, but it was super outdated uh, anyways. And the bottom line is that uh, any new projects have to be approved through regulatory bodies that exist already. That sounds like it's technically true, but um, it also seems like the way that I, I, I kind of try to understand this, and please tell me if I'm completely off base, is it's kind of like if somebody wants to go into a bar and get a drink. So previously, uh, we effectively had a bouncer at the door that would say, here's the, here's the rules. If, if you don't meet that, you don't get to come in. And now it seems like the, the removal of this policy is kind of like taking away the, the bouncer and just relying on the, the bartender, who's kind of busy already, to make sure that nobody's getting any drinks that they shouldn't be getting um, and, and everybody's of age. Is that, is that a, a fair, if not clumsy, metaphor? Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. You know, it, it's what the core policy did is sort of do that high level check at the door. It kind of said, these areas, we know their value, both economically, socially, ecologically, we know these areas are of higher value for left intact than they are for coal mining. Um, and so I actually, I actually think that we're creating more uncertainty um, without, without that policy, not just for um, whether these projects will go ahead, but you know, the AR wasn't set up to do that high level where is and is not appropriate. It's set up to where we, through these high level planning processes have decided is more appropriate or lower environmental risk or, or lower uh, or higher social support. Um, that, that's where projects can go ahead. And then it's just, are they meeting the sort of permitting requirements? Are they meeting the, the minimum standards um, of environmental regulation? In the AR, that's what the AR, AR kind of does. Without that, we're putting these projects in places that are really high risk ecologically, really high risk socially and high risk economically um, and kind of forcing them into this process that they shouldn't have ever made it to in the first place, which, which you know, as a citizen is quite frustrating, but I would even think as industry, um, it, it puts them in a really uncertain situation that they could, you know, get down the path and, and realize that Albertans don't want it there that the environmental risks are too high, that they can't get approved. Uh, I just think it's a bad situation all around. I want to get into why the there is such a high level of, of risk involved with, with these projects in a bit. But I also just want to kind of circle back real quick to the whole idea around the, the question of whether or not there's any economic significant economic return. One of the arguments that, that I've heard some people say is the notion that, well, it's going to create jobs and we'll, we'll get royalties and stuff. Um, but my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that when we're talking about uh, the, the, the fiscal return on these projects, it, I, I feel like if I use the word pittance, I'd be being generous. Uh, does that kind of line up with, with what your understanding of the, the, the return is? Yeah, I mean, I, it is. I, I think, sure, there will be some jobs created. Um, but I think, you know, given the, the boom and bust type economy that comes with, a, a, comes with coal, um, given, the, you know, their move to uh, use more technology and automation, um, as well as, 
um, you know, just the, the temporary work type forces. These aren't the like surefire job creators they went for. In fact, um, they're, they're often what the companies say they're bringing in is, is way overestimated than what they actually do. And then at the same time, they're undermining other local economies. And that's why we're seeing, you know, the ranching folks, the agriculture folks down, downstream, um, the outdoor tourism businesses and economies, real estate folks so upset about this, or one of the reasons they're so upset is that, is that it's going to be underlining their bottom line. So we were replacing these more sustainable, long-term type jobs with short-term boom and bust jobs. Um, and then, as you mentioned, that, that what we're getting back from it, even as a province, um, royalties are really low, about 1% uh, royalty rate, which is, which is really low. Um, and, and we could be left with pretty massive environmental and economic liabilities. You know, the reclamation costs, if we do have water contamination that we have to manage for potentially hundreds of years, um, those are all costs that, that there's a really high risk that those are gonna to fall to us as, a, as citizens of this province. Um, and so I just think that, you know, it is bringing such huge economic and environmental risks um, and, and not, not bringing the, the huge benefits that they're purporting. I think, I think the, the risks outweigh the benefits by a long shot. Okay. And for context, the, the number that I've heard in regards to what uh, Alberta could expect to see in regards to getting the royalties is in the neighborhood of $15 million uh, per year, which is, uh, for added context, perhaps half the budget of the war room. So there's, there's ways to, to recoup that in the, the, the fiscal ledger fairly easily. Um, I have a bit of a bias there. <laughs> um, but I, th I think it's important to, to realize that we're, when we're talking about the kind of projects that we're talking about, there seems to be a very high risk for long-term environmental impact. Uh, and the fiscal reward is literally less than a rounding error that has occurred in the last provincial budget. Um, but I'd like to talk about what those risks are a little bit more. So Yeah, and actually, uh, before we go off that, I'll just say one thing that is also kind of the elephant in the room is that these are all Australian companies. Um, so the, they're, they're all Australian companies, all Australian investors. Um, this is coal that will be taken out and shipped uh, overseas for steel making. So it is metallurgic or coking coal. Um, so even, you know, where the money is made on this isn't, isn't here. It's not Albertans who are, who are benefiting. It's, you know, Australian investors and, and potentially Asian steelmakers. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up the, the differentiation between the, the, the coking coal and the coal that people would burn for uh, energy. Um, because the, the concerns that I've been hearing from people haven't been so much what is going to be the the environmental impact on climate change by taking this coal out and burning it for whatever reason uh the concerns have more been you're going to destroy mountains and potentially unleash some pretty serious pollutants so i don't know that that a lot of albertans are super concerned with you know what the end result of the the materials that come out of the the mountains is it's more that we're destroying mountains and potentially doing a lot of pollution. So it's, it's, it's interesting you bring it up because that's, that's one of the talking points that I've seen uh, some people uh, promote 
in regards to trying to to mitigate the the backlash from Alberta. Ah, oh, no, it's not burning coal; it's for for steel. But you're still doing the thing, so it doesn't really change anything. Yeah, it's still. I mean, c cooking coal is it is a, it's a higher quality of coal, and that's why it's used um, in steel making, uh, not in thermal energy generation. Um, but but ultimately, it is still a massive greenhouse gas emitter. So you know, it is. You're right, climate isn't actually being talked about in, in a huge amount in this conversation, but it's not because it's not a climate issue. Um, clean coal is actually not a thing. Um, it's, it's a word, um, but it's, it's not, uh, it's not actually, it, you know, it's a little bit cleaner burning, but it's still a massive carbon uh, emitter. The, the clean coal has always kind of, that, that term is, is one that people like to throw around, but it's, to me, it's always kind of like saying the good cancer um, I'm not sure that's a thing. Uh, so, um, so let's talk a bit about sort of what those, those risks are. So in and out of the gates, we have the fact that we're talking about large, uh, large partners of the Rockies being literally just destroyed in order to obtain this coal. What are, what are sort of CPAW's biggest concerns about the environmental impact from just these projects operating? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I would say, five big buckets. Um, the first one is the obvious one, like you said, you're you're literally taking the top off a mountain, um, and and digging a big hole, um, and that has just massive effects on on the ecosystem, the plants, the wildlife, the the fish, just the lot, the sheer loss of habitat is is a pretty big thing, as well as the disturbance that creates, you know, even um, more impacts to to fish and wildlife. Um, but, but I think the one that we hear about most in part because it is a really big issue um, is the water, the water uh, quality and quantity. So uh, coal mining takes a lot of water. So just quantity wise, it takes a lot of water um, through the processing, you know, they're digging it up, they're, they're cleaning, washing, getting all the non-coal particles off of the coal before they can ship it. Um, and so that's a big water use. And then through that process, some of that water is absorbed. And so some of that water just actually leaves the entire the system through, through shipping coal away. But then the water quality one, um, there's a lot of contaminants that come out uh, of coal processing as well. The big one we hear about is selenium. And in part because we've seen the massive impact of selenium um, just on the other side of the, the divide in the Rockies and the Elk Valley. And selenium is essentially, it's a naturally occurring element that, that exists in and around the, the coal formations. But when it's exposed to, to water and oxygen, it changes to a soluble or leachable um, substance. And that can get into the waterways. And, and if it does get in the waterways, um, it's really, really hard to control. It's really hard to get out. It can persist there for hundreds of years. And we haven't seen a mitigation that works to entirely prevent it from getting in the waterways. So it's almost inevitable that we will see a selenium contamination issue downstream um, of these coal mines. They do have you know, mitigation measures. They're really new, they're unproven. Um, and the experts that we've talked to um, think that, that they're very unlikely to work to the, to the efficacy that the companies are, are reporting. And that is, you know, I mentioned that that is literally where water 
drinking water comes from the province. It's the water that's used in growing our crops. It's the water that's used by the, by the ranching community downstream. You know, water is a pretty big deal in Alberta. Um, oh, anywhere. Um, and, and I don't think it's something we want to mess with. Um, and the other piece of that, it, it also, you know, selenium is also from a fish and wildlife. I talk about fish a lot, um, way more than most people want That's me okay. to. Um, <laughs> I, fish are really cool. Um, but, you know, we, we also know that these, that these contaminants have a, has a massive issue or, or impact on fish populations um, and, you know, cause deformities. They cause population collapses. They they're, have a big impact on that. Um, and the other thing that is happening that I think has received a little bit less attention is that while the government is also, you know, taking away the coal policy, um, changing changing the the environment for coal companies in the southern region in, in the Old Man Basin, they are also looking at changing the water allocation policy. So um, the South Saskatchewan River Basin, which includes the Old Man, has been closed to new water licenses. Um, since I think 2007. And that means that, you know, there's a certain amount of licenses out there that are used for agriculture, for municipal water needs that they're drawing water from, from this basin. Um, and what the government do, is doing now is opening a whole bunch of new industrial licenses, um, which A, both, you know, it's, it's essentially giving water to these coal companies in our headwaters regions um, and letting them cut ahead in, in the system. So right now, if you want a water license and you're an agriculture producer, you need to buy that license from somebody else through a market system. Uh, but what they're proposing to do is just open a whole bunch of new allocation and give it to the coal companies, um, which is not just an environmental issue, but kind of unfair, kind of goes around the whole market system that has been set up for, for water allocation. Okay. Just to go back to selenium for a sec, one of the, the there's sort of been two things that, that we've been hearing a lot about selenium. One of them is the idea that uh, selenium can be directly attributed to uh, malformations and uh, growth weirdness in, uh, in fish. We'll talk about fish a little bit more for you. Um, that, is, that appears to be well documented. Uh, and, you know, sort of past the point of, do we need to talk about whether or not it's a thing anymore? It's a thing. Um, but the, one of the counter arguments that I've heard advanced is that, ah, uh, it's just salt. Now, before we did this interview, I went upstairs to my kitchen counter and I double checked on my box of salt and it says sodium chloride on it, not selenium. So can you kind of make sense of, of uh, if possible, can you kind of make sense of where that, what that argument is and why it's not necessarily the best one? I, I, I do not understand that argument, to, to be honest. Selenium is not just salt. Um, you know, I'm not a chemist, um, but, you know, we did hire a chemist to look at their selenium mitigation so that we could have a, a good idea. Um, but it, it's, it is an element that is known to have health effects not just on fish, but on people in high enough quantities over, you know, if you drink it for years and years at, at high qualities, it can cause um, some serious health impacts to, to people as well. So it, I, thought, I thought that was the weirdest statement I had ever heard, to be honest. Um, okay. and, and who it came from concerns me even more uh, that maybe that person doesn't understand 
um, uh, what he's actually dealing with. And, and just, I don't, I, you know, I'm dancing around it, but it, you know, Robin Campbell, who's the, the president of the Canadian Coal Association, I think had said that. Um, and if, if their president actually doesn't know what selenium is, that makes me even more concerned about <laughs> what these coal companies are doing if their highest person doesn't actually really understand the issue. Okay. Um, the other piece that I wanted to talk about uh, is the whole question of uh, one of the, the arguments that's been used is, uh, well, if they go ahead with these projects, they'll have a, a, a responsibility to remediate and reclaim those sites, uh, which is a fascinating argument to me to roll out when the federal government has just sent Alberta a whole lot of zeros of money. Uh, to deal with the fact that we have all of these abandoned wells that companies had a responsibility to clean up that they didn't. And it's only compounded for me by the reality that we've, we've seen plenty of stories where sites that were granted remediation without any sort of inspection, um, well, the guy who remediated ticked all the chicky boxes, so it must be good, uh, are now showing to have not reached anywhere near the level of remediation that's expected or required. So do you have any, con like, is there any validity to concerns that, and I'm going to oversimplify things a little bit, we, we've crapped the bed so badly on remediating our other projects. Is it a great time to be opening up new ones when we can't even effectively deal with the ones that we have from previous boom and bust cycle economies? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two pieces of that. One is you can reclaim, remediate, you're, but you're not putting it back to what it was before. Like you are not reconstructing that mountain and the complex ecosystem that existed on that mountain. They may be you know, putting soil back, planting some grass, creating a new different environment. That different environment is not gonna perform all the functions that our original environment right now is performing, whether that is you know, water functions or you know, complex wildlife habitat, or, you know, or, or even, you know, the function of wanting to be out and enjoying or being able to be out and enjoy um, those areas. Reclaimed mine sites are also still not often safe or used well by, by the public. Um, so, you know, just checking a box, whether, whether it meets those standards or not, actually is not a full, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, we're never getting that back. And then the, the whole issue of liability. I mean, that's huge. Um, it, it's, it's a huge risk, I think, that, that we, we're taking here if we go down this road, um, expecting that the companies are still going to be around to reclaim. Uh, I think that, um, you know, if they even still exist that long, this is, we're, we're not talking, you know, five years, they're gonna be able to reclaim these places. We're talking potentially hundreds of years, particularly when it comes to the water remediation. Um, and, I, and I think that there's, very low chance these, still, these companies are still going to be around to do that. Um, we do have the, the Mine Financial Securities Program. So that's the program that, that companies are supposed to pay into as they go along. Um, and I think, you know, as they get closer to the end of their life, that they pay more and more into it with the expectation that that will go to um, reclamation. Right now, you know, before all these mines are built, just with, with the mines that we have right now in Alberta, um, not just coal mines, but all, all the mines. We have an estimated, I think it's $31 billion of liabilities and $2 billion in that fund. So even before we even 
build any of these new mines, we have a massive gap um, in that in that liability uh, program. Uh, and I and I I also think that it's a really high chance that that this is going to fall to the public um, that we are going to be responsible for cleaning up and maintaining. You know, if we have to maintain a, a settling pond for the next several hundred years to make sure selenium is is not leaching or not leaching is bad. That, that's a massive um, undertaking as well. Okay, so just to make sure that I'm understanding what you just told me correctly, with our current mining system, we're looking at a $29 billion shortfall between what we're going to need to pay in order to clean it up and what it's going to cost right now. We're $29 billion short on that bill. That's my understanding, yeah. Okay. Well, that's good news. Um, <laughs> um, let's talk a bit more about the, the, the water impacts because there's been a lot of conversation. And, and to me, it's, it's, I, have, I have problems with the way that the conversation has been framed. I saw an article come out uh, earlier in the week where it said, uh, well, we've looked at the, the water table and Calgary will probably be fine. High River, eh. We don't know, but Calgary will probably be fine. And, and that to me paints a very dangerous picture because when we start to talk about things as complex as, as water supply uh, and, and we start to pick and choose winners to use somebody else's words um, in regards to who's going to be getting a water supply potentially still, um, that, that seems like a, a very dangerous conversation to have. So when we're talking about the areas that are potentially going to be affected by the proposed projects, to your understanding, what are we talking about? Yeah, and even that gets into this whole other level of complexity. So right now we are seeing most of the proposals um, in the old man watershed or, or the leases granted um, in the Old Man Watershed. So that's um, that's the drinking water supply for Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, Pincher Creek, that whole Southern Alberta, Alberta region. Um, there are some leases um, up in the Clearwater County region as well um, that I think will be moving forward in the next few years. So that's water supply to Edmonton. Um, and then some further up that are, you know, maybe not water supply to major, major centers, but um, Northern Alberta, smaller Northern Alberta communities and Indigenous uh, communities. Um, but I think there's another, uh, there's actually two other pieces of that. So first I'll say it may not affect our immediate drinking water supply in Calgary, those particular projects, but I think you're right. I, I'm not one who wants to pick winners and losers on, on who gets clean water. You know, as long as I get it in my house in Calgary, well, I'm cool. Um, I, I don't need to worry about the South. But, but even if we wanted to do that, um, I eat a lot of food that comes from Southern Alberta that's grown um, from that irrigation system uh, that, that is also at risk. So it, if I was only thinking of myself, um, just because I live in Calgary doesn't necessarily mean that, that I'm off the hook. Um, never mind that some of those places are my favorite places to go. Um, so out of pure selfishness, I still want to continue to go there. Um, but the other really the complex piece, and, and to be honest, I haven't uh, figured this out completely yet or, or how it will work is that there are leases and, and those are, you know, the company is leasing the rights to mine that mineral that is owned by the Crown um, from, from the government or from Albertans essentially. 
And then there are, there are a bunch of freehold uh, coal rights uh, throughout that whole region as well. And freehold rights are, are they are privately held mineral rights. So it's, it's a little bit different from a leasing. They are, they are owned by individuals or, or companies. And there are freehold mineral rights in, um, in the Kananaskis region, which is the water supply to Calgary. My understanding is that right now, um, the Kananaskis plan does not allow mining in that region. But I also uh, think that as we move forward, um, that Kananaskis plan could not be strong enough. That could be, be removed also. It could be incorporated into the South Saskatchewan plan without those, those pieces. That those freehold mineral rights with the loss of the, um, the coal policy, um, freeholds are also now op open for mining. So uh, I, I have to do a little bit more digging to really understand uh, what that means for, for uh, Calgary's headwaters. But I still think that if we um, had the coal policy or a, a stronger legislation, to be honest, is I think what we're moving towards asking now um, is, is that would just be much safer for protecting even Calgary's water supply. Okay. Um, with the economic piece, I just want to kind of bounce back to that because I'm a scattered mind. Um, but with the economic piece, one of the the arguments that certainly advocates for these projects have, have advanced is, like we talked about, it's coke and coal, it's going towards producing steel. We had a conversation uh, with a few folks uh, who are advocating for NMAX to go net zero. Uh, and one of the things that came up in that conversation was the idea that there are lots of other ways to do the same job that the, the coal does without using the coal. There was conversations about electricity, there were conversations about hydrogen, but the underscoring, the underscoring theme was that there's a whole lot of emerging tech that uh, is moving at almost an exponential rate in regards to how to do these jobs that doesn't involve coal. So even if we take a look at, at the negligible financial gain that the province will get from these projects, do you think it would be safe to say that there's also a huge risk that we'll blow the tops off of our mountains, we'll get a little bit of coal out, and then some of these companies will discover that there's cheaper, more effective ways to do the job of the coal that doesn't carry the same uh, greenhouse gas emission risks. So never mind, we're gonna go back to Australia now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it is a little bit more complex, like you said, because it's not thermal coal, where they're very clear, you know, at scale, marketable um, alternatives to, to thermal coal. A metallurgic coal or coking coal um, isn't quite there yet. Um, about a third, about a third of, of steel is recycled, and recycled steel does not need um, coking coal. And so I think there there could be a more of a move towards that. And we also do know that there are um, other technologies coming on, online. Um, they're not scale, they're not at scale yet. Um, but we are talking, you know, the next these companies are saying they'll be around for. 25 years, if, if we think they'll actually be here for 25 years. Um, you know, in the next decade, I think we could see some some big moves forward as far as moving away from um, coke and coal, even for steel making. And so it, it does seem in, in a world economy where we are more and more trying to find these new solutions and, and 
technological advances to um, address the, the climate issue that we could be, you know, just hanging on that tail end of, of, um, of the coking coal. Yeah. And I think like for just a little bit out of context, uh, we're, I'm using my phone right now to record the, uh, and to, to have this, this video conversation that's going to be turned into a podcast. 10 years ago, that tech didn't exist. So when we're talking about how quickly tech grows, it's really, really fast. Uh, and so certainly with, I mean, we're starting to see more and more major players in the world market start to demand uh, more uh, environmentally responsible uh, net zero kind of programs. Uh, and certainly the direction that the new president of the United States seems to be taking their economy is very much in uh, a more green approach. Uh, and so uh, even from a step from there, I take a look at, it seems like every week now we're seeing some sort of investment firm saying, we're not going to be doing any investment or business with any, any companies that, that have these sorts of projects in their portfolio. So there's, the way that I look at it is that I see there's this, this it's not that there's a sea change coming, there's a sea change that started. And the, the choice I think that Alberta has to make is uh, whether or not we want to be in front of that sea change uh, or whether or not we'd like to drown. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think the other piece is, is, is this the right place? You know, like the, one of the arguments that we hear is we, we need steel. We still need steel. We still need coking, coking coal to make steel. Um, but, it, but is this the right place for that? I mean, at what cost are we, are we, are we making that steel? Um, is blowing off the tops of our mountains potentially or, you know, high risk contamination to, to our drinking water? Uh, losing species at risk. Do we need steel at all possible costs? Or are there some places that are just too valuable for other reasons that they're not the right places to remove that coking coal? And I think I think the the Alberta's Rockies is one of those places. What does what does CPAWS want? What are you guys what are you guys advocating for right now in this whole process? Well I think there there's some stages to that. I think immediately we don't want to see any new exploration granted or any more damage done to these areas. So one of the things we actually didn't touch on yet is the fact that these mines, you know, the mines are future, but there's a lot of activity going on in the ground right now um, from some of these companies, you know, building, building new roads, um, building test drill pits, um, and all of that has a, has a massive disturbance on its own. So halt to that. Um, we as a as a Alberta public are having this very public conversation. The government didn't didn't have that conversation with us. They you know rescinded this policy with zero public consultation. Um, but we as the public are having that conversation. So while we're having that conversation, I think we needed to see no more damage on the ground. Um, and 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 I I think you know there's a lot of calls for reinstating the old coal, coal policy or or that and I think that could be a short term you know in the short term putting that back, but ultimately we I think we need to reassess that this landscape as a whole, um, whether coal is appropriate across this landscape you know I, I mentioned that there are some category four areas like Grassy Mountain or there's a few other areas that other companies are are um, moving forward on that they they are category four so they technically even under the coal policy could have gone forward. 
but are still just not appropriate places for coal. So I think we do need to create a new big, big picture plan that says where is coal appropriate? It's probably not many places um, in, in that Rockies region. Um, and, and also looking at other uses, you know, there's a, there are a lot of other uses out in that Rockies region. So what, what is the future of Alberta's Rockies? Um, is it coal or is it, you know, more sustainable, diversified economy, economies, places for people to be outside, thriving wildlife and fish populations? Um, I, that would be my vision of, of Alberta's Rockies. And I think when, from a lot of people talking about this, that that is a lot of people's vision. So um, immediate halt now, and then let's build, let's build that what we want next uh, out of out of these really amazing places. If people want to learn more about CPAWS, uh, or if they want to support that pursuit, how do they, they find you guys? Um, what can they do? All that stuff. Yeah, so we have um, a lot of information online and, and it's going to be a little bit complex, um, but there's a CPAWS Southern Alberta website and there's a CPAWS Northern Alberta website. Um, right now, our, our general information is, is kind of the same on the coal policy, but I think as we start to move a bit more on specific projects, um, there'll be a little bit different information on those websites. So if you look up CPAWS Southern Alberta and CPAWS Northern Alberta, you'll find it there. Um, we also have a website um, that's joint with the Livingston Landowners Group um, and a bunch of other different recreation and conservation partners who are coming on uh, to support that. That talks a lot about the Southwest region, the Upper Old Man, um, the Grassy Mountain Mine, all of those, all of those websites have a lot of good information, but they also have places to take action. And that's the really important part that I can't stress enough to folks. Um, as people are getting inform informed and outraged and, you know, taking, um, you know, really wanting to see change, uh, that is not enough. Um, just posting on Facebook or, 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 talking about it, I, I mean, I rant a lot too, um, but, but you need to take to that next step and, and write your elected officials. And so on all of those websites, there's a really easy tool um, that if you don't know what to say or you don't know how to look up your, your um, MLAs or your MPs uh, phone number or email address that you can just, you type in your own message or use the form and, and, and it'll automatically send to um, your MLA and your MP. And, and I think it's important for both of those um, right now because Grassy Mountain is kind of in the hands of the feds or, or will be, it, it will be the federal government who ultimately decides whether that project goes forward. Um, and then the coal policy is a provincial jurisdiction. Uh, I think it's really important that both levels of government are engaged as well as your municipal government. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of these municipalities um, who, are, who are now understanding more than ever the potential impacts of this um, and, and passing resolutions and, and asking the government to reinstate the coal policy or, or build a new one. Um, so right, all, right call meet with all levels of elected representatives is, is I think the most impactful thing folks can be doing right now. The last sort of question that I wanted to, to ask, you as a hunter, I mean, there's, there's, we saw and we've seen that Alberta has a fairly proud history of, of, of hunting. I myself, not a hunter, um, but that just is me. Uh, but there's a, there's a lot of people out there who take a lot of, of pride and a lot of enjoyment in being able to 
uh, harvest uh, animals from the land. Uh, do you have any concerns about how these projects are going to impact not only your ability to do those things, but the quality of uh, meats or what have you that you're able to, to get? Yeah, I mean, for me, hunting is one of the most basic ways that I connect with nature. Um, and I think maybe a lot of non-hunters don't, don't understand um, that, or, or maybe they do. Um, but you know, you are, you are really out and part of that environment. Um, I'm, I'm more of a backcountry hunter. So I, I walk it for all my hunting, um, getting into areas. I, I do as much as I can away from roads and, and away from trails. Um, and so for me, I'm completely immersed in, in that environment when I'm out hunting. And so that quality of experience is huge for me. You know, I was, I was hunting this fall, um, looking for elk and I was sitting up on the top of a ridge looking west and that west view I knew that just over the next ridge was where all these mines were being planned um and a the wind was blowing in my face I was I mean almost being pushed off the ridge it was so strong and I don't really want cold dust blowing in my face the next time I'm up on that ridge um I also don't want to hear the lights and the sounds and the you know be, have a lot of those areas taken away from my access to be able to, to hunt in those places. So, you know, just the quality of experience and the ability to go out to these places that right now are so special to me. Um, that I'm, I'm choked um, about the, the potential of that being taken away. I, I know a lot less about sort of the, the selenium or other contaminant issue in, in meats or, or, you know, animal, um, larger mammals. Uh, but that's actually something that I'm now going to look more into because I, not only do I not want to sit with cold dust blowing in my face, um, I may not want to be eating meat that comes from that area. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. I think it's really important to, to highlight the fact that, that you are, uh, a hunter. Uh, and, uh, I say that because I think that for a lot of people, there's this perception that if you're talking about protecting the mountains or if you're talking about protecting the environment, uh, you're a dirty hippie uh, and, and you're just, you just don't understand how these things work. And so I think it's really important for people to hear that a lot of the people and, and certainly people like yourself who are at the forefront of advocating for this uh, are, are, are people who are what a lot of people would associate as being sort of the prototypical Albertan. Uh, in that you are a hunter, you are somebody who uh, is going out into the land uh, and, and using the land in a way that is, is in a lot of ways traditional for a lot of Albertans. Uh, and, and you're not necessarily going out with, there with your patchouli, I'm guessing. Uh, <laughs> no, that, so. that scent would drive, that would, that would blow, blow my cover with elk in, in a minute, yeah. Yeah, so so uh, there's there's a there's our hunting tip for the show don't wear patchouli <laughs> um is there anything else that you'd like people to know uh is there anything else that you'd like to communicate to people uh about these issues well i mean i think what you just said actually is is a really great point this this is not an issue of a, a bunch of tree huggers who are concerned about you know trees or well we are concerned about fish. We've talked about that, um, but you know, it's not—it's not just the your stereotypical greenies. It is. 
I've actually almost never seen an, an issue um, cross the spectrum of Albertans like like this coal mining issue is. Um, and you know, not not everybody is is opposed or on or, or on side, but um, you know, it's it's it is conservation groups and and probably those patchouli wearing hippies, um, but it's also hunters and anglers and ranchers and recreationalists and agri you know irrigation farmers and municipal municipalities. It, like it is a, it is the cross section all political beliefs, all background, rural, urban. Um, it's a major issue for a lot of people in this province. And I think um, that both shows the gravity of it, but also our, our power in that, that that's an issue that, that can bring together so many people in this province. I, I think we can have a lot of power and I think we can um, um, win this. Well, I'm certainly, I think it's safe to say, like when you take a look at the number of times that this government has um, let's go with reconsidered their position because I'm feeling generous today. Um, it has only been when the member members of the public have voiced their frustration or voiced their disappointment or voiced their disapproval. So I, I think that your point about uh, a the fact that this issue unites all Albertans. Uh, is is a message that the government very much needs to hear. Uh, and to your point about writing MLAs and ministers, uh, I think that it's incumbent upon Albertans to make sure that all levels of government, like you pointed out, uh, do hear it. Um, so thank you for that point. Um, I want to just take a sec to, to say thank you. Uh, for being as generous with your time as you have been today and and chatting uh, and sharing this perspective because it is a on its face it is a very complex issue but I think that that you've done an incredibly well uh, or an incredibly effective job of, of presenting the the core of the issue in a way that people are, are going to be able to understand it and quite frankly need to understand it so thank you very much for that yeah thank you I think I mean I think this is is a defining issue for Alberta in in a generation um, you know this this is really going to define who, who we are what our landscapes are um, now and in the future and I think it's it's one of the most important things that people can be learning about and getting involved in awesome thank you again yeah thank you and that's it for this episode of The Breakdown. Now, before we go, there's a couple of things that we just want to talk about real quick. So first of all, for those of you that are watching the video episode, you probably might have noticed that I'm rocking a little bit of a different political t-shirt than I normally would. And there's actually a really good reason for that. Uh, we've partnered with an organization called Baller Gear, who's a local Alberta company, to create a line of merchandise for the breakdown. Um, but what's really important to know about this line of merchandise is that all proceeds from anything that uh, you guys decide to buy is going directly towards an amazing organization called Be The Change YYC that does homeless outreach uh, to help support homeless Albertans who aren't able to access supports through any other way for a variety of reasons. So they're a really amazing cause. We did an interview with one of their uh, well, their founder, Chaz Smith, a little while back, uh, and we can't say enough good things about them. So if you want to get yourself one of these t-shirts, uh, we're going to put the link in the description, and you can grab one of these shirts for yourself, knowing that all profits go towards Be The Change YYC. Uh, and with that, 
we're pretty much at the end of the episode. So as always, if you enjoy the kind of content that we're producing here, we'd ask you to please consider to uh, please consider supporting us at our Patreon page by becoming a patron. So to do that, all you have to do is go to www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab uh, and you can sign up and for a very small monthly amount, help us to continue to pr produce the kind of content that we're trying to produce here as well if you're listening to the audio version of our podcast please consider leaving a rating and review because it's those ratings and reviews that help us get the podcast in front of more people and into more people's ears that's it for this week we just want to say thank you again uh, for your time and your attention <laughs>